This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Nina Stoilkovic, mm-hmm. uh, Vice President for Asia and Pacific for the International Finance Corporation. We will speak with her about the challenges of maximizing finance for development and scaling up private sector investments in Asia. Also joining us for this conversation is Georgia Petkowski, a senior fellow at the Zicklin Center for Business Ethics at Wharton. Uh, Nina and Georgia, thank you so much for joining us today at Knowledge at Wharton. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, Nina, when we had our last conversation in the winter of 2017, uh, we had talked about how blended finance was emerging as a substitute for aid uh, in the achievement of the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Now, in view of your current role in the Asia-Pacific region, how do you see blended finance working in that part of the world mm-hmm. to solve uh, difficult challenges like ending extreme poverty? It's a great question, and uh, if you remember, it was a bit of a pioneering uh, approach at that time to launch um, a new set of financial uh, instruments to help bring um, private sector into the projects that otherwise would not have happened, right? And at that time, donors were uh, also uh, interested in returnable instruments rather than grants because most of their governments uh, were uh, facing tight um, uh, budgetary constraints. So for me, it's amazing now to be in a truly operational role in IFC, where I have a responsibility for a third of IFC operations in one of the largest regions that is home to 60% of the world's population, where development challenges are very prominent. Uh, you being from the region, <laughs> right. in terms of your origin at least, um, I, you can understand uh, the issues of um, uh, inclusion and uh, remote areas, even of middle-income countries, uh, the need for people to get access to finance, access to basic services, health, education, water. Uh, we're definitely not there in terms of um, full access to all of these this services. We are not there in terms of um, developed infrastructure. Uh, we have a threat of climate change, which is in Asia very, very prominent. So, And I can go on and on on development challenges. So when I connect it back to blended finance, um, the, the millions, trillions of dollars that will be needed to finance um, those projects that will deliver services, deliver infrastructure, will be possible only if private sector engages, especially institutional investors, and they will not do it if we don't de-risk those projects. And the blended finance will be one way to, to, to bring or to bridge that, that gap. And just as a quick follow-up, in, in, in the time that you have been in this role, what are some of the more uh, you know, challenging situations you have dealt with? Mm-hmm. Um, in different countries, different uh, different challenges. Uh, but the exciting opportunities are, for example, in countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, which are moving for, from predominantly state-owned enterprises into a proper private sector. And we are, we are seeing that transition, and we're seeing the governments that support that. Uh, in China, obviously, I mean, very, very proud of, of the country that has practically eliminated poverty for 800 million people in 40 years only, just through the set 
of reforms and proper policies and regulatory changes, where we still have about 70, 80 million uh, more uh, poor people, and we are trying to find solutions for them. In India, I'm, I'm fascinated by the innovation, uh, technology, and uh, use of technology to solve some of the health issues, education uh, issues. Uh, I, I see a lot of innovation because the traditional service providers are not able to reach to the poor in India, for example. Yeah. And then I can go on and on in different countries, <laughs> different challenges. But uh, one thing that connects uh, all of that is still quite a lot of um, development uh, needs and still a lot of work for us as development institution and development world, you know, to support that. Great. So uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Georgia, <clears throat> based on what we just heard from Nina, uh, both in terms of challenges and solutions, what do you see, uh, how does that compare with the rest of the world, just looking at it from the perspective of the World Bank and other institutions? I mean, let me first make uh, one comment uh, uh, before we generalize that, is that the fundamental, one of the very important aspects of blended finance is now that creates space for the private sector to get more aggressively engaged. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it created some challenges for the private sector to revisit the very concept of corporate strategy. Right. Because now you have a better, broader space for engagement, but it's becoming a little bit more complex to deal with these issues. So we need, the, it's not just the money, access to money, but access to new opportunity to re redefine the way how corporations engage. Uh, so generalize on, on that concept is very interesting that one of my students, uh, uh, the ethics and corporate responsibility course, she went to Bangalore mm -hmm. to see uh, how the homelessness works there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how non-government organizations, NGOs and private sector engage in solving these problems. And now she's saying, I want to, based on that learning, to see how I can better see the challenges in Philadelphia with homelessness. So I'm just giving that angle in a sense that uh, because Asia is definitely where most of these innovative ideas are mm -hmm. coming because of tradition, education, and everything else. But moving to Africa, for example, is becoming a very uh, important issue. And when I look at that from the perspective of this joint program, between Wharton's English Center and the World Bank Group uh, for young people uh, and innovative ideas, I can see that more, a lot of new ideas in exactly in that space are coming from Africa. So that's mm -hmm. very inter interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, Nina, you, you mentioned climate change, and yes. I see that climate change is becoming increasingly important in IFC's list of priorities. What are some of the factors that are driving mm -hmm. that uh, that that uh, sense of priority, and what is IFC doing to address the challenge of uh, climate change, especially mm -hmm. in Asia? Um, we we started thinking about climate change maybe earlier than the rest of the world uh, in a kind of prominent way, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. We set up a climate um, department to basically come up with some of the measurements on what is green or what is climate. Uh, friendly and that that methodology kind of led us to be able to track how much we are doing in climate. So that's on kind of more on the kind of supply side, so that we, we were able to offer certain uh, solutions or ideas to our clients, whether they're in manufacturing on how they can green their buildings or agribusiness, how they can uh, have less uh, CO2 emission, uh, be climate smart, or or in cities or 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 in 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 energy, which is obviously as you know mm -hmm. the great contributor to 
to, to pollution, uh, certain sources of energy. So um, in the meantime, the world has also moved forward and realized that if we don't do something about the global warming, um, we will we will have many more people falling into poverty, and uh, obviously the climate events, especially prominent in Asia, given how much how many coast uh, people actually live on the coast in the coastal areas, mm-hmm. that all really provides a, it's a real threat, right? And so combining the two. IFC has set targets uh, for itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want uh, a third of our overall business across many multiple sectors to be climate-oriented. Mm-hmm. As I said, we provide advisory services to our private sector clients on how they can improve their operations so that they become mm-hmm. green. We are able to measure that, to quantify it. We have been able to influence other uh, multilateral development banks to, to, to um, have a common methodology mm-hmm. on what is climate-friendly and, and, and how to collect collectively measure it. Uh, we have also, after the um, uh, One Planet Summit in Paris, we have uh, we have uh, done a report uh, for 26 uh, emerging markets where we have identified $23 trillion of opportunity for climate investments in multiple sectors. And um, maybe just to state what we see, where we see the greatest opportunities, and I will talk a little bit more about that to, to the students in the afternoon, uh, it's clearly a, a energy, renewable energy, that's going to be the a game changer if we move mm-hmm. more to renewable sources. Um, green cities, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, urban transport can become green, uh, buildings can become green. Um, then um, green bonds, mm-hmm. uh, we see green bonds as the way to stimulate and and, and uh, uh, have more financing for green projects. Green agriculture, climate smart agriculture, biomass, mm-hmm. um, and um, I, I think green buildings, uh, not just related to cities, but in general, green hospitals, green buildings, green housing. Um, these are the five areas where we see a lot of potential for doing kind of climate change oriented uh, green uh, projects. Great, thank you. And George, again, looking not just to Asia, but other parts of the world, uh, in places like Africa, there have been tremendous climate-based challenges. The most recent example being the devastating disaster like the Cyclone Idai. Uh, What role do these extreme weather events have uh, in pushing people into poverty, uh, you know, even though you might have uh, development taking place at other levels, and what can be done about that? I mean, first, obviously, many of the countries have not been prepared for what is coming. And I think it's a little bit unfortunate that we are very good in organizing big global events and discussing that, so the global awareness is there. But how you move from something which is global to something which is country-based is a big challenge. And that's one issue I think that needs to be addressed. It's not just a matter of the governments there uh, who attend, by the way, these kind of conferences, but also, for example, big multinational companies operating there and how they engage with uh, local companies. And this, uh, if that become part of the corporate strategy of the supply chains, then that come automatically connected with the local communities because they are in one or another way part of that supply chain. And that's what I think we need to do much more. 
few days ago, we had the CEO of Firmenich uh, uh, visiting the, the World Bank and, and Wharton, by the way. And he said after that big summit in France, mm-hmm. you know, he came back to his office, bring the, all the top managers and say, listen, these are the targets for our company. We are not going to wait, you know, that some global body will decide on that. He said when he uh, addressed these things, uh, the first shock was there. Everybody thought this is impossible. Yes, it is impossible if you want to do that in incremental way. But if you redefine the, the strategy, corporate strategy, put the most, the smartest guide, this entrepreneurship, to really think in another way, basically was saying that they achieve the goals they have for the next two years. Mm-hmm. So these things are, but the, then the impact is tremendous because now he, they require that everybody in that supply chain become part mm-hmm. of addressing the issues mm-hmm. of climate change. So my point is that unless we have local buy-in, because this is where the, really the consequences of climate change are, and unless these people are equipped properly to deal with these issues, we will continue more on a, a general conversation and doubts, is that real or not real, instead of uh, solving real-life problems. If I may just uh, react to, the, to that, I see a great opportunity here, especially in emerging uh, markets, including Africa and Asia, because a lot of infrastructure still has to be built. Right. A lot of houses still have to be built. And uh, we have an opportunity now that we are building them with all this knowledge that we have and the new technology and understanding of climate change impact to build resilient cities, resilient infrastructure, structure. It's it's much harder when you have it already in place in some of the developed countries to kind of upgrade it and and make it resilient. But now that we are building and investing trillions of dollars in infrastructure in emerging markets, let us build it right. And this is where the the institutions like ours can actually help clients and investors um, um, design their projects so that they are climate resilient. So how, how do you see the role of technology and innovation in helping to bring about these kind of resilient mm-hmm, solutions mm-hmm, and green solutions? Uh, in general, I see it um, as, as one of the main ways uh, to um, leapfrog or um, solve the, the intractable problem that traditional ways of uh, have, have not been able to solve. For example, in, in agri-insurance, when I look at uh, what farmers face uh, in many countries, you know, unpredictability of weather and how much losses they have, um, uh, by having a mobile phone and, you know, being able to have weather uh, predictions and then link it to agri-insurance, uh, we can actually improve uh, productivity of, of farmers. And in so many other ways, I think um, we can connect technology with some of the climate uh, change um, solutions. So you, you mentioned the, the, the funding gap and the fact that trillions of dollars of investment are needed to implement some of these solutions. Uh, especially to mitigate the impact of climate change. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about the role that IFC is playing in mobilizing private sources of capital mm-hmm. uh, and, and especially your Green Bond Fund initiative yes. in, in, in overcoming some of the challenges uh, you know, posed by climate change? 
Um, absolutely, and I think it connects to what we talked about last time. I mean, um, we can talk about mobilization of private financing, which to me comes at the end of the spectrum. Mm. We need to have uh, projects uh, and private sector participation, private sector interested in going into those projects before we can mobilize for them, right? right. So if you go to the beginning of that spectrum, uh, we need to create a market. We need to create a bankable uh, or, or sustainable project. And this is where I think IFC is very well placed uh, through the work that we do at the sector level, through the influence that we can have through World Bank and uh, influencing governments to make regulatory changes and related to climate change, to how the new things will be built, right? That where I see, that's where I see a lot of role for IFC and the World Bank. So once some of the sectors start changing based on these regulations, we may still have enough risk uh, to prevent private sector from participating. This is where we bring uh, blended finance to de-risk those projects, uh, try to attract some of the private sector companies to those uh, new countries, new sectors, new projects. And then when we have all of that, then we can talk about mobilization. And um, IFC has done a lot in terms of supporting our banking clients, financial institutions across the world to issue the first green bond of its kind in a country. And, and we have went even further than that. Uh, now we are doing that with real sector companies who are actually raising funds. Uh, we just did um, a green bond for a Filipino company that's investing in renewable energy in Vietnam, for example, mm. thanks to the IFC support. And, and in addition to that, we have now helped set up uh, the largest green bond fund in the world with French Amundi, $2 billion, which is going to buy bonds issued by other banks. Mm. And we also invested, we put a lot of donor funds into that or attached it to this fund to educate banks mm. uh, locally on how to issue bonds. But then Amundi will be uh, supported by $325 million out of $2 billion from IFC will be buying those bonds. So it's a whole spectrum, right? And, and it's not just in climate change-oriented projects. We can talk about that um, uh, in that sense about all kinds of sectors and all kinds of interventions. So just, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, just element of this holistic approach is, of course, how technology uh, can facilitate this process. But when I'm referring to technology, it's also about new products and new services. And we are talking here at Water, one of the leading university in, in uh, innovation in the world. To what extent this new generation of graduates here, in addition to superb uh, technical knowledge, also have a better exposure to the real-life problems that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. I see that as a very missing link because many opportunities are not really so obvious and they are not properly equipped when they leave the school to start implementing that. I'm very happy that three years ago, one of the winning proposals in Idea for Action was microinsurance mm -hmm. coming from mm -hmm. Wharton. Mm -hmm. But last week, one of my students from biotechnology here was saying, yes, we do uh, 3D printing, but we never really get in-depthness of what real-life problem we can address through that. And the other was uh, the, the financial aspect of that. I'm not sure that uh, the Silicon Valley culture will be probably the best one on addressing at least one subset of these problems. We need alternative uh, sources of ideas generation, but also the, uh, the financiers, the, the investors on the other side. They have to be a little bit more educated instead of putting billions and billions of dollars self-driving. I'm not saying a one or the another, but I see a lot of space 
for new creative engagement where the holistic approach you are referring to uh, will have all the critical components to make the, the final outcome very and uh, I just useful. wanted to add that trillions actually sit with institutional investors. Yes. But then they have certain risk uh, appetite. And the challenge for developing communities to bring those trillions that sit uh, with pension and funds and insurance companies into use for some of the financing that we are talking about. Because you have gaps in trillions, and then you have a lot of money sitting somewhere, right? And being risk-averse and connecting the two, I think, is the way how we will actually implement the SDGs. Now, in addition to climate change, the other really important goal for the World Bank Group has been to reduce extreme poverty uh, from 11% to 3% of the world population by 2030, and also increasing incomes mm -hmm. uh, for the bottom 40% yes. in every country. Uh, can you speak a little bit about what IFC is doing to support mm -hmm. these goals mm -hmm. and any examples you may have of projects that have had significant impact? Sure. When we speak about these two, two, two objectives, two goals by 2030, I kind of can visualize the world in, in, in terms of very poor countries, um, fragile, conflict-affected, where a lot of poverty will remain. In 2030, most of the poverty, more than half of the poverty, will actually be in, in those type of countries. And, and then uh, when we talk about the boosting the income of the 40% of the lowest income population, we're talking more about middle-income countries, right? right. So um, where, where we see a lot more opportunities for private sector in a traditional way of supporting investments is in middle-income countries. So IFC has a lot of role to play in those middle-income countries in manufacturing, in services, in infrastructure financing, agribusiness, health and education, right? And that will all help, you know, create jobs because private sector is 90% percent of job creating right and and then we'll we'll improve that uh, the problem is really in with poverty in the, 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 the poorest countries in the world, where I don't think that IFC alone can make a real difference if we don't work with governments, with uh, the World Bank on regulatory changes, on policies that will open up sectors to private uh, private participation. This is a really hard work. It's multi-years effort, um, but we, we are now uh, adjusting ourselves to uh, increase our ability to create markets, as I call it, in those countries. And because, after all, private sector will still be needed to create those jobs and for people to maintain jobs and not go back to fragility. Can you give any uh, examples from Asia that, that have had significant impact? In, in the fragile countries? Mm -hmm. I think we have been able, in a country such as Myanmar, for example, mm -hmm. to completely design sectors from scratch because mm -hmm. we were, in a way, lucky that both World Bank and IFC, as well as Asian Development Bank, entered the country after many years yeah. of not being present there. Right. So we had two joint implementation plans. One was on the energy uh, sector and another one was on financial inclusion and we practically designed them and worked with the government on proper regulatory changes to to actually have some of the greatest examples now in my region on how we created the market uh, for energy in in Myanmar and 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 improved quite a lot of um, uh, access to finance basically through the work that we did with local banks we were also able to bring uh, banks from Cambodia into Myanmar and from other countries into Myanmar but we had a plan and we started from, from scratch. So to me, Myanmar is still one of the greatest examples. Uh, I'm doing quite a lot of work in Nepal. Mm -hmm. We are trying to do something similar. Um, for seven, eight years, we have been working on bankable 
commercially viable um, hydro, uh, large hydro uh, power project. Mm -hmm. And finally, we were in a position last week to take the first of its kind to the board. But it took seven years, uh, joint work of the World Bank, IFC, with the government, and finding the right partner from Korea to invest in it. And it has a lot of blending because mm -hmm. it's the first of its kind, which will hopefully open the market. That, that's really interesting. Now, Georgia, you, I know you have been leading the Ideas for Action project that is designed to come up with very creative and innovative solutions. Uh, do you have, can you give any examples of projects? I mean, first, uh, I want to make uh, the comment about the fragile states. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, sometimes we are neglecting one very important component of that, and that's the fact that we are obsessed with building institutions which has to be done, but that will take generations to, to make that function. The, 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 the thing is how we combine both, you know, putting in place good regulations, but regulations which are implementable, and how you deal in a situation when it will take time to, for these institutions to be created so that you can uh, utilize the power and creativity of these people who can function beyond the constraints of uh, institutions. Interview last week, I was in the uh, Wharton Conference on Latin America, and somebody was making a general presentation of some challenges Latin America is facing. And it was interesting, the entire presentation, good governance, corruption was absolutely not mentioned, which is amazing. <laughs> I mean, in most of these fragile states, that's one of yes. the key problems, and we are still uncomfortable to talk about that. And now going to the fragile states, when uh, Democratic Republic of Congo has tremendous challenges, that's more than obvious. But last year, we had most proposal coming from Democratic Republic Congo than any other country. <laughs> so the institutions was not constrained. You have to have a minister of uh, development who said, I'll put that on my priority, and then to have a decentralized approach where young people organize themselves, create this idea, communicate these ideas. And the creativity of ideas is also how you have ideas which can be implemented with limited institutional support. Of course, these are not these big uh, kind of investment things so that some Korean <laughs> company will come and invest, but these are the seeds, you know, like the initial grass which will start growing and complement all these additional efforts. So, I mean, we have a number of successful process, uh, uh, examples of that. I think one of the, them is definitely the, the example from Uganda. Uh, with this uh, uh, solar uh, base uh, lighting, mm -hmm. uh, bringing in, in the houses of uh, villages without access to electricity, mm -hmm. which make fundamental uh, difference. It's not really just the renewable energy, but the fact that there's the only uh, available energy, and this is not just the lighting. This is opportunity for girls to feel study. more comfortable, to study, to go to schools, then on a larger scale, this new industry developed around sanitation and water. You know, this is completely different story than 10 years ago. It's not about fixing toilets. It's something much bigger than that. It's about girls feeling comfortable to go uh, in high schools because there are toilets that can be used, but the toilets are not just for their basic need. Now, the question is whether you can use the outcome of the use of the toilets as organic uh, fertilizers. Which is what Gates Foundation is working exactly on. Exactly, and they are working with uh, the, the mm -hmm. Firmenich, uh, yes. uh, the, the Swiss company. So the holistic approach is probably the key way of doing that, but not holistic approach which can be highly centralized and pushed, 
but holistic approach with create opportunities for these decentralized ideas to emerge and to start being implementing, although we are missing a lot in traditional way of understanding institutions. So just a couple more things. Uh, how, where does gender equality figure in IFC's mm -hmm. priorities for Asia? And what is being done to encourage women entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. uh, especially at the bottom of the pyramid? Very good question, and maybe maybe just to make it um, easier to respond, um, we segment women into uh, and opportunities with women in several categories, because uh, when you mention gender and gender equality, it means different things to different people, right? right. And so we look at women as uh, women as employees, and then women as leaders, um, and women in business, which is women entrepreneurs and women as consumers. Mm -hmm. And for each of these uh, segments, we have uh, solutions. So when we talk about employees, we are trying to work with our clients to help them um, address uh, any issues preventing women from working there, right? Uh, it goes from separate restrooms for women to childcare options, for example. That's one way. That's where IFC is very good at to provide that advice to our clients and incentivize them to, to allow for women to work. Uh, one area where we have done quite a lot is in our Banking on Women uh, program, which is targeting women as entrepreneurs. We have educated um, many, many banks over the around the world uh, on how to offer um, to women customers uh, specifically designed products, right, and how to incentivize them to seek for that particular segment to, to grow. And women as leaders, of course, uh, we are trying in IFC and the World Bank in general to have women in the leadership in an equal position as men. Many of our presidents set targets for 50-50 um, gender balance management team. It has worked many, many times, and we're trying to work with our clients on improving uh, women in their, on their boards and training those women, etc. And then, of course, women as consumers. There is a, such an untapped um, uh, market potential mm. if you look at women as a segment and uh, for example in insurance and, and other sectors that I think many smart companies should be exploring. So these are like the, like the four aspects of, of, of how we work with women across the world and how we help our clients to work with women. Uh, Georgia, this uh, also plays into one other act, uh, initiative that you're actively involved in which is SDGs and HER. Uh, how, how do you think Initiatives like that can complement what Nina was describing. Uh, if you could give some examples of that. Well, I think this kind of initiative, we'll see more and more of them. If we see more and more women in the IFC and the World Bank, because they better understand uh, the, how you design projects and incentives for uh, women to get engaged. Uh, SDGs and her initiative focus on micro-entrepreneurs, women micro-entrepreneurs, which is very important in the context we mm -hmm. discuss about weak institutions and what they can do about that. It's not just about the awareness of uh, or bringing them to the spring meetings, which will happen in two weeks' time, mm -hmm. uh, but also through that to encourage many other young women around the world mm -hmm. to really... Uh, build on the knowledge and understanding on the local needs, because that's one critical issue. We are talking about innovation without really understanding that one of the first initial challenge is how you properly identify the needs for particular goods or services. And if we include 50% of the population, women in identifying the needs, then maybe mm -hmm. we are doing completely different, uh, wrong things. So this is a combination. And let me just add, 
even in my class, when I look at these issues related to uh, development, uh, climate change, I see a lot of uh, enthusiasm coming from students, I mean, the female students more than uh, the, the boys. I, I'm not generalizing on that, and I don't know whether because uh, I'm biased, they say, in, in, at least in context of corruption, uh, that the more women are engaged, the less corruption uh, is happening. <laughs> I don't know to generalize that uh, further than that, but uh, uh, definitely uh, also through the educational system, particularly motivating uh, young girls to go to engineering schools and science, because I think we need more of them than uh, we currently have. Uh, so, yeah, e exciting time. <laughs> I think one, one thing with women is not just uh, recruitment, right? It's mm. also retention. Yeah. Something happens to women down the road. Mm. Because uh, I think we have 50% graduates from mm. top mm. universities and other universities are women, right? But something mm. happens down the road. So uh, figuring out those constraints, there are a lot about child care or aging care and... Uh, and and then also boosting them to you know be more um, confident as they choose um, next level jobs. I think that's something that we also can support. Yeah, I think <coughs> flexible working arrangements flexible also very uh, use critical, of technology, especially since women still tend to be uh, predominantly uh, caretakers. You know, caretakers of uh, aging mm -hmm, parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, so and, children and children as well. As well. And uh, this, this brings me to a point that uh, there is an estimate that uh, the uh, care industry could be a $10 billion business right. if we could okay. just turn it around and get those right. women to actually work, do paid jobs in right. care. Right. But then countries have to invest <laughs> in care industry, whether it's child care or, or, or aging yeah, care. Yeah. And we see yeah. some countries like China, for example, where aging care right now, it's about... 11, 11 billion dollar business. I was told that in in ten years it will be four hundred billion dollar business. So yeah. we have a potential to invest in aging care yeah. and the care in general and employ quite a lot of yeah. women and others in this new uh, new industry. So we are almost out of time. So I will turn to each of you and say if you have any concluding comments on the issues we've been talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. okay. Um, as always, I will conclude um, with the SDG 17 uh, because we have touched on so many um, development challenges in both uh, um, developed countries, but I would say mostly emerging markets. And there is no way that we will uh, implement the SDGs in 11 years, what's left mm -hmm. uh, by 2030, if we don't work together mm -hmm. as partners. And there is a role for private sector, for governments, for multilateral development institutions, for academia, for young generation, young people, students, uh, women and men to make all of that happen. And because we were anyway talking about things which are critical to be implemented now, but that will have a longer term impact on, on the planet, I think we have to stop talking about future leaders. The leaders are now. Young people are leaders now, not future leaders. They are leaders in the space where they can operate. It's not that they should outsource the future to us to fix the things for them. So the more space we create for them, the better education we provide for them to start taking their responsibility, not only in the individual level, but their, let's call that generational responsibility, which I've been working with uh, Professor Laufer, my colleagues, on developing that concept. We have to understand that the young generation has to start immediately 
taking responsibility for things that they can really contribute in a much more creative and impactful way than my generation. Nina, mm -hmm. uh, Georgia, thank you so much for speaking today with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you for thank the opportunity. You for, your for more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.